Good morning. We are going to continue our series in the Gospel of John. So everyone open their Bibles to John 6. And we're going to start in verse 66. John 6, starting in verse 66. And this is where we ended last week. So as we begin, let's go to our Lord in prayer. Holy Father, we thank you that you've given us another day to live, Father. We ask that we use our energy, our thoughts, our actions for your glory, to love you, to serve you, to honor you, Father. We ask you that you would help us to love others the way that we're called to love them, Father, to put others above ourselves. In this time of Thanksgiving coming up, help us to be full of gratitude. But help us not to be just thankful because it's Thanksgiving. Help us to be thankful because we have been bought by the blood of Christ. We praise you and honor you in Christ's name. Amen. Well, John 6, 66 says this, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. That means no longer walked with Jesus. What a shocking conclusion considering a few hours earlier, thousands followed him by the droves. These folks had followed him for the last few days over land and sea. And we find out that they were following because they knew he was the Messiah, that he was the Savior of the world, that they followed him because they knew he was God in the flesh, that he was one with the Father. They followed him because they knew he gave eternal life. They followed Christ because they knew he was both Lord and Savior. Is that why they followed him? Not exactly right, or not at all. John 6, 26 says they followed Christ, this crowd followed Christ, because he fed them. So they didn't follow him because they wanted to live for Christ. They followed Christ, hear me here, they followed Christ because they wanted another free meal from Christ. But finally, the crowd heard enough. They didn't want the free meal anymore. They heard enough of Christ's words, which hardened their heart by the power of the Holy Spirit, and they left Christ for good. You can imagine, if this was a movie scene, the camera is focused on all the thousands of people walking away from Christ, walking by Christ. And then when the dust settles... There's the 12 faithful disciples and Christ alone. We can imagine the camera, if this was a movie scene still, turning from the, the large crowd leaving and focusing on this small group, the 12 faithful disciples that were probably saddened. They were probably confused, probably discouraged. And then it says Jesus turns to them and says to the 12 do you want to go away as well? And at first glance, it looks like Christ is being reactive. 
as if the Lord was frustrated. He was upset that most of his followers left him and he decides to lash out on the 12 and says, do you want to go away as well? Does this sound plausible to us this morning? That Christ was hurt, frustrated, angry, so he reacts harshly against the twelve? I wonder how we see God this morning. How do we see Christ? Do we see God as both holy and loving simultaneously? Or do we have a different view of God as him being impersonal? and harsh, and ready to pour his wrath out on us at any moment. I must confess, I understand seeing God as angry, reactive, ready to send us to hell, ready to smite us at any moment. I think in our society, most really don't struggle with this view any longer. But for those of us who were raised in legalistic households and went to legalistic churches... It's easy to see God as critical, judgmental, uncaring. I know, I was taught that God was upset with everyone in the world and that everyone else was lost or severely misguided except the 50 of us that sat in this little church in Michigan as the pastor taught we were one of the only ones saved. We were the remnant in the world. You know why we were the only ones saved? Because we used the King James Bible. We didn't use instruments in worship. We practiced altar calls religiously. And our name was the most biblical name that you could have. We were called the Church of Christ. And yet... I didn't really even know who Christ was, but at least I had my KJV Bible in hand, and I knew that the NIV really stood for the non-inspired version, right? Legalism majors on the minors and minors on the majors. These churches use fear. They use anger and manipulation to keep people under their control. Legalism gives us a wrong view of God and ourselves. For example, I was taught that God loved us as long as we didn't sin. When we sinned, well, we weren't sure exactly what God thought of us, if he still accepted us or not, or even considered us his child at that point. And I must admit, that caused some real confusion because I knew I was a sinner, I knew I struggled with sin. And I remember thinking, I wonder if God really accepts someone like me. If he will really tolerate someone as bad as I really know I am. There was no security. There was no love. There was just a God who was watching and waiting to say something like, do you want to go his way as well? It was a God who really didn't care about me personally. It was a God who was really easily and offended by me. So I ask us this morning, how do we view God? How do we see God? How do we see Christ? Do we see God as patient and loving and long-suffering? Or do we see God as an angry, mean, reactive God? Almost as if God 
is a bad father who does not personally care about us. He just demands and expects perfection. And when we aren't obedient, he just gets angry at us. He wants to give us his wrath. He wants to punish us in a way of not helping us grow, but in a way of getting rid of us because he's annoyed with such pathetic disciples. It would sort of be like me telling Silas, my four-year-old, he's not in here right now, by the way, Silas, my four-year-old, you know, son, you make a lot of messes at home. A lot of messes. I mean, just when you eat, you still spill milk on the counter when you have cereal. But worse, you sometimes tell lies. Lies that have a lot of details. Lies that are way too creative for a four-year-old. And worse yet, you sometimes ignore what mommy's instruction is to you. And because of these problems, we're really tired of your failures. You're just not making it as one of our sons. So you know what, son? It's time. It's time for you to pack your dinosaurs, pack up your Legos, pack up all your books and your Bible, and go find another place to take care of you. I mean, this is ridiculous, right? That's ridiculous. If I really treated my children this way, you would conclude that I was unloving, I was probably demented, selfish, and at least emotionally abusive to my children, right? And yet some of us look at God this way. That God is some sort of dysfunctional father who is, who is ready to discard us or reject us when we aren't living up to his expectations and standards, which leads to point number one. Point number one says we are eternally accepted by the Father. Point number one says we are eternally accepted by the Father. And obviously I'm talking about those who are in Christ Jesus. We can have full assurance, full confidence that we are children of God. Amen? So when Jesus asked the 12, do you want to go away as well? I believe he was saying that from, from a perspective of their benefit, from a perspective of love for them. D.A. Carson says the question is because it, the question is asked more for their sake than his. They need to articulate a response more than Jesus needs to hear it. So in other words, it was an opportunity for them to voice their faith, to vocalize what they believed about Christ in the midst of droves, thousands of people walking away from Christ. As Christ loved his disciples, took care of them, Christ continues to glorify the Father by taking care of and guiding those of us in Christ Jesus today as well. Amen? And it isn't because of our good looks or our good personalities either. Or because we are nice to others or because we are upright citizens or because we feed the hungry or because we help the widows and the orphans or because it's not because we read our Bibles or pray or fast or because we know the right theology. Or love the unlovable. So the question is then, why? Why does God have such love for us? Maybe God's love, 
God's acceptance depends on our own abilities, our own goodness, right? Not really, right? If that was the case, we would all be in serious trouble. I mean, think about it. I mentioned I have three children. And just with them, my sinful heart is often revealed with them. My heart can overflow with pride, selfishness, and anger. And this is just all in a short span of time. This could be in an hour's time. In a simple moment, a mere inconvenience or, or something else can easily cause my heart to spew out frustrations, pride, anger, which leads to things like grumbling. My point is not that you have a terrible pastor and you need to fire me. That's not the point. But that these are issues, these are struggles, these are problems that we all battle as we struggle with sin. And the reason we have this problem with sin is because at the core of our being, before we were transformed into a saint, we were wicked sinners. We sinned in everything we said and did before we knew Christ. But now, as believers in Christ, we are positionally cleansed. And yet sin is still a daily struggle for us. So we don't want our acceptance or our confidence in the Lord to be based on our performance, on how good we are. We'd be in serious trouble. But Scripture gives us some really bad news by saying that in order to be accepted by God, do you know how good you have to be? Perfect. We have to be perfect. What does perfect actually look like? You know, because a lot of people have a, different, a lot of different viewpoints of perfect. Well, perfect is what God is. That's what he calls us to be. That means we love everyone like God loves them, do everything out of faith, never grumble, never worry, putting others above ourselves all the time, praying about all things, not thinking too much of ourselves, etc. I think you understand the point that all of us here are sinners, and we struggle with sin, right? If you don't believe me, ask your spouse. They'll tell you. Jesus says, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Matthew 5, 48. James 2, 10 through 12 says, For whoever keeps the law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he said, for he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So James is saying that when we break one law, we are guilty of it all because one sin separates us from God. So we can't be tainted or sinful in any shape or fashion. We can't have a little poison running through our veins and think God will accept us. It's not possible. But it gets worse. Because it's not only that we have to be sinless, that's not even good enough. It isn't the only criteria. Because that just brings us to a neutral status of not being evil any longer. But God calls us also to be holy, to be set apart like Him. We have to have a righteousness to be accepted by God. We need a righteousness outside of ourselves to be made right in God's sight. Which leads to point number two. We are accepted because we have been redeemed by Christ. Amen? 
We are accepted because we have been redeemed by Christ. That's why 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Christ died and our sins were imputed to him while those of us who believe in Christ, his righteousness was imputed to us. So in other words, we are accepted by the Father because Christ gave us his righteousness while he himself took on our sinfulness. Amen? Have we thought about such a loving transaction that was planned by the Father from the beginning and instituted by the Son? Listen to what Paul says to the believers in Ephesus. These are just some unbelievable verses. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. Ephesians 1 verses 3 through 5. So Paul says, because of Christ, we are much more than just accepted, right? But adopted as children of God and blessed, by the way, with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. Is that amazing? That's amazing. Why? Verse 4, we were chosen. When? Before the creation of the world. So Father already had this plan for his children before the foundation of the earth. The question is, why? Why did God have such a plan? A plan that slaughtered his own dearly beloved son on our behalf. Well, let's look back to verse 4 and 5 in Ephesians 1. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. So why did... Why did God sacrifice his son on our behalf? It was because of love, it says. His love for us, the motivation from God the Father towards us is driven from a heart of love. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Do we recognize the love that God has for us this morning? Are we in awe of such love, love that ended the life of his son, a love that does not change or waver, an unconditional love for those who are in Christ Jesus. This love we receive from the Father should brighten the worst of our struggles. It should brighten the worst of our trying times. The love of God should brighten the worst of our tragedies. Because we are loved, we are accepted by the Father. Amen? Let's go back to our passage in John 6, verses 67 and 68. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? 
So Peter jumps in, responding probably before the other disciples had time to even process Jesus' question, and he asked Jesus a profound question. Lord, whom shall we go? To whom shall we go? It was somewhat ironic, right? Because we just saw 99% of the followers of Christ walk away from him, turn their backs on him. And Peter asked, Lord, to whom shall we go? Where else could we go? Who else will we follow? What other way is there to go in this life? Can you imagine Peter? He does not see another way. He sees only Christ. To him, there is no other way. This sort of reminds me of a story about my wife that she probably doesn't want me to tell. But she gave me the grace and allowed me to tell the story anyway. But it was a story where my wife only considered one way to go. And this was during her teenage years, so this is a really, really, well, not that long ago, but... (laughs) Okay, this was during her teenage years, and when she was learning to drive, she was driving her mom and sisters to the mall in Atlanta, okay? And when it was time to go back home, her mom insisted that Jamie figure out what way she needs to go to get home. And... Jamie and myself aren't the best on directions. Let me just say that. So then her mom knew that she was going to get lost. So her mom gave her a hint and said, Honey, just go back the way you came. So Jamie went literally the exact way she came and turned left onto a one-way street with oncoming traffic heading right for their van. Now remember, this is in Atlanta traffic. So what did my wife do when she realized she was headed on oncoming traffic? What did she do? I think she did what any good driver would do. She panicked and jumped in the back seat. (laughs) While her mom had only seconds to jump in the driver's seat and get out of harm's way. Jamie says it was the only time in her life her mom said, less than an honorable word. (laughs) My wife says the moral of the story is one way really means one way. But I thought the moral of the story is don't ever panic and jump out of the driver's seat when you're driving. That's just a bad idea, right? But my point is my wife only had one way to go. As Peter looked at the choices of life, he was looking at all these choices and he could only see Christ. His only option was to follow Christ. He left his profession. Peter left being a disciple of John. He left everything for Christ. He only saw his life centered on, wrapped up in, focused on Christ. History tells us that Peter not only lived for Christ, but he also died for Christ as well. Peter was martyred, we find out, for his faith. It was said that Peter was going to be crucified for his faith, and he said that he wasn't worthy to die like his Lord and Savior. So they crucified him upside down instead. Peter asks, Lord, to whom shall we go? I wonder if we would respond like Peter. Where else can we go, Lord? 
Who else would we ever follow? What other place can we go? Peter's response exudes faith. It exudes such purity. It exudes such sweet devotion to Christ Jesus. We really, as a church, need to meditate on Peter's question. We need to just sit and soak on such a holy inspired question, Holy Spirit inspired question. But let's go back to John 6, 68, where Peter says in verse 68, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Peter, listening to what Jesus just told the crowd just hours earlier in John 6, 54, where he says, whoever feeds on my flesh, this is Jesus talking, and drinks my blood has eternal life. Christ is where all the blessings of God flow. Christ is the life giver to us this morning. Which leads to point number three. Eternal life is found in a person, not in a system. Eternal life is found in a person, not in a system. We don't find life in the world religions. We don't find life in following the Old Testament. We don't find life in following the five pillars of Islam. Nor do we find life in Hinduism or Buddhism or any other ism as they all espouse that their interpretation of eternity is found in a set of rules or guidelines that you follow to the best of your ability. Both Christianity, you don't, it's something altogether different. Christianity is unique. It's unlike other religions. It's unlike what you can imagine. It's not human. It's otherworldly. It's heavenly. Christianity says that we were saved because of Christ, not because of our ability to keep rules. It flies in the face of our pride. Christianity takes the focus off of us and gives it to Christ. It puts God in his rightful place and yet shows simultaneously the love and care that God had for us. Amen? Christianity is hard to swallow. We want to take the credit for something or at least, you know, help out a little bit to get our free ticket in the heaven, right? But Christianity makes our boast, our pride, our joy in Christ and in Christ alone, as in Christ is the only way to heaven. So I ask, what other way do we have to go, church? What other way do you have to go? What other way do I have to go? But you may be thinking about this, and you may be thinking, I'm not trying to find life in other religions Maybe we aren't even thinking of eternity at all. Maybe we are thinking about this life right now. We're trying to squeeze all the fulfillment, the purpose, the happiness out of the moment. We don't want to wait for eternity. We want heaven on earth right now. So we chase after whatever seems to please us. Whatever feels right in the moment. And often that seems to work out for a time, right? But often the excitement... The pleasure, the shallow fulfillment of self starts to wane. It isn't as great as we thought it was going to be. We end up empty. The pleasure doesn't seem to have the same effect on us anymore. It reminds me of a child who just wants to eat dessert for breakfast, right? It sounds great in theory, but at the end of the day, you get a sick child. But sin always has a price, 
It always has a price. It wants to do more than just take away our hopes and dreams. But it, and it wants to end our relationship with Christ. It wants to destroy our fellowship with the Father. We want to follow self. We want to do what we want to do without recognizing the consequences of sin. And again, this really reminds me of a little child who just wants to stick the fork in the light socket, right? Or he just wants to run out in the street because it seems fun. Or he just wants to jump in the pool without being able to swim. The child does not recognize the dangers, the seriousness, the consequences of such actions as we aren't much different than they when we are trying to fight for our own way all the time. Living for self enslaves us to sin. We become trapped. We become controlled by our passions and desires with a continual lust for more, Scripture says. Ephesians, Paul warns the Ephesians of this in Ephesians four seventeen and 19, saying this, No longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Paul says the flesh never is satisfied. Sin continues to take and take and take. We may seek life in itself in sin, but in reality, it leads to suffering, pain, and ultimately, death. Are we seeking life in Christ? Do we have life in Christ this morning? Or are we seeking life in other avenues? Are we living for self, trying to get all the fun, all the happiness we can in this moment, and disregarding God and His Word? Are we living for every feeling that rises up in us, controlled by pleasure and shallow happiness? Real life is found in Christ. Eternal life is given to those who repent and turn to Christ in faith. Amen? So let me ask us this morning, do we see the depth, the richness, the blessings of following Christ? Let's go back to our passage. John 6, 68 and 69. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. So Peter gives this great confession of faith as God has given him the ability to see who Christ really is. And you may be saying, wait a minute, how do you know that it was God who allowed Peter to be given such knowledge about Christ? I mean, why couldn't Peter come up with that on his own, right? Well, we have Peter's other great confession of faith that was recorded in Matthew That Jesus tells Peter it was the Father that allowed him to see that Christ was Lord and Savior. Let's look at it real quick here. Matthew 16, 15 through 17 says this. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? So Jesus is asking the disciples, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Flesh and blood did not reveal that to Peter, but it was the Father. God opened Peter's eyes. It wasn't something Peter came up with on his own. Peter's words revealed a heart of faith supernaturally given to him by God. 
But also, I would ask us, where does faith come from in the first place? Is it something we can whip up within ourselves? Or is it something that is given to us by God? Well, Hebrews 12.12 tells us that looking to Jesus, who is the founder and perfecter of our faith. Christ is both the author, the perfecter, or the finisher of our faith, not ourselves. And that means Christ begins our faith, and Christ will be the one who develops and matures and gets us to where he wants us to be. Which leads to point number four. We are secure in Christ. We are secure in Christ. Is that good news? Well, turn with me to John 6, 35 through 40. 35 through 40, this was a couple sermons back. In the same chapter. This is Jesus talking. He says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So let's stop there for a second. What happens to those who believe? It says they will never thirst, right? They will always be secure in Christ as they're in Christ. The question is, why will they always be secure? Why will they always be secure? Well, let's read on. And this is verse 36. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but... Do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise him up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. I will raise him up on the last day. Amen to that, right? Why will those... In Christ be secure? The answer is Christ takes ownership of those who are drawn by the Father, it says. Our faith is not dependent on us, but it's dependent on Christ Jesus. We have security, and it won't be in our strength that we will remain faithful. It won't be in our wisdom that we will remain faithful. It won't be in our own abilities that we will remain faithful, but it'll be in Christ's strength. It'll be in Christ's abilities. It will be Christ's faithfulness that keeps us safe. In the Father's arms. Christ says, I will lose none that the Father gives me. None. This is security. This is stability for those of us who have turned to Christ in repentance and faith. The question is, are we secure in Christ? Are we children of God this morning? Have we submitted our lives to Christ and believed in faith that he died on the cross and was buried for three days and rose again and is now sitting in the right hand of the Father, thus saying that we recognize and know that he is both Lord and Savior. If you haven't taken that step and turned to Christ, I pray that you do. But I want to end with Psalm 139, verses 1 through 17. Psalm 139, 1-17, this is a psalm of David. And it says this, O Lord, you've searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain it. 
Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where, where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night. Even in the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as day. The darkness is as light with you. For you have formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that you formed or ordained for me, when as yet there was none of them. Amen? David saw God correctly. David knew he was accepted, loved, and secure in God. And we can stand by David this morning knowing that those of us in Christ are wholly accepted by God. We are fully loved by him and eternally secure in Christ Jesus. Let's go to him in prayer. Holy Father, we praise you for the confidence that you give us in Christ Jesus, recognizing that we are fickle, that we are often quite pathetic, that we often are full of pride and selfishness and blind to a lot of things within ourselves. And often we're puffed up thinking we know better than you, that we know better than everybody else, and you lovingly come around to us and humble us, bring us to our knees. Help us to worship you instead of ourselves. We thank you for such grace, such love, such such patience with people that are as hard-headed as we are. We thank you for Christ. We thank you for the Thanksgiving season. Help us to be grateful, full of gratitude, praising you every moment of the day. In Christ's name, amen.